Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. And welcome to In-Depth. I'm Doug Sovereign. Today we're talking Supreme Court and, and much more. The politics of President Trump's coming appointment as well as the legal ramifications of the big decisions the court just issued at the end of its term. But first we're going to get into some politics about the Supreme Court and beyond. And for that we're joined from Washington by KCBS political analyst Mark Sandalo. Mark, thanks for being with us as always. Hey, Doug. So, there's a lot to talk about, uh, not just the Supreme Court, but some other things, too. But let's begin with that. So, President Trump, unexpectedly, somewhat unexpectedly, uh, some people thought Justice Kennedy would be retiring soon, but gets another pick. And uh, true to form, President Trump's going to announce it in prime time on Monday night, uh, as if it's a reality show, because he's big on ratings. Uh, How much is at stake for him here? And is it really not so much for him, because he's already put out a list of people and we have a good sense of, of the field from which he's picking. I, I, I suppose in the short term, you know, the pick is going to be dissected and people are going to say it reflects on him. In the long term, this may be the single most impactful thing that President Trump does during his presidency because whoever he picks is going to last on this court presumably for, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. The president said 40 or 45 years. And it will be the difference between um, you know, the, the majority being a more conservative majority and uh, as compared to with Kennedy on a much more mixed court. So, I mean, this is extraordinarily consequential. And, and the president understands that. You know, he, uh, he'll he often be in front of conservative crowds, and many conservatives have been doubtful of him. And he'll say, you think my presidency has been good? I got two words, Neil Gorsuch. And that's, of course, his previous justice he picked. And conservatives go wild because they know that that's a lasting influence. So, yeah, Doug, this is real important. And that actually helped him win the election, didn't it? Because he focused on that during the campaign. And evangelical Christian conservatives who really may not have been that comfortable with him, uh, many of them voted for him anyway because they had their eyes on that prize, the Supreme Court. Not only were they not comfortable, many of them thought he was a wretched human being. I mean, I've talked to religious conservative voters who have said, you know, you say, well, why did you vote this way? And they said, well, the Christianity means more to them than other issues. And you say, well, come on, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Well, how did you figure that Donald Trump was a better Christian? They, they don't even try. What they say is, if he can get a pro-life judge on the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade can be overturned, that will save millions of unborn babies. And if you believe that's a life, that's far more important to a lot of conservative religious folks than, you know, the president's lack of a sense of morality. And on the flip side of that, I spoke to voters during the campaign when we were out covering that. Bernie Sanders voters who were disappointed in Hillary Clinton. They didn't like what they saw in the emails of the way he was treated. Jill Stein voters, voters who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton in the end and didn't focus on the impact of what that might mean if Trump were to win. Partly, I think, because they didn't really think Trump was going to win. But they could not bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton. And if she were president, we'd be talking about a 6-3 liberal majority for a generation as opposed to a cementing a 5-4 conservative majority. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, that's why, you know, elections matter. And, of course, you know, I've been covering politics. You've been covering politics for decades now. Of course it matters to us. But one of the things that you hear from a lot of people is, you know, it's a cesspool in Washington. It doesn't matter who's elected. Trump has, in many ways, tried to fuel that. These elections have enormous consequences. And as you point out, the Supreme Court pick is, is sort of point number one in that case. Don't remind people how old I am by pointing out I've been doing this for decades. Uh, <laughs> politically, from the point of view of the Democrats, they want to try to block this. Many of them are calling for the confirmation to be put off until after the election. Is there any chance of that happening? There's no chance of it, simply because Mitch McConnell, who is who, who's a, the leader of the Senate, understands that if this carries through Election Day, there is a chance that Democrats take control of the Senate, in which case this person will never be confirmed. So I think he's made very clear, despite his big push last year, when uh, two years ago now, when Barack Obama nominated somebody in the final year of his presidency, that it's not right for a president to pick somebody in an election year because voters should have a say in that. Well, this is different because now we have a Republican president and McConnell's very, very intent on getting it through. It's conceivable that Democrats decide to use some you know, procedural ploys. They can't use the filibuster because Mitch McConnell got rid of that. But they can't use the filibuster. But there are things they can do to slow down the Senate. The problem is, and this is, uh, you know, again, very cynical political calculation here. They've got to figure out, Democrats and Republicans both, who does this who, who does this embolden during the midterm elections? And traditionally, the people who are most emboldened by issues like this tend to be Republicans, because the single easiest Supreme Court issue to point to right now is abortion. There are other social issues, you know, uh, same-sex marriage. These are a lot easier to discuss and analyze than, you know, pro-business and economic issues the court also deals with on a much more common basis. So the Democrats don't have too many arrows in their quiver. They they can make a fuss about what McConnell did on the Merrick Garland nomination, but they don't have the votes. So uh, realistically, this is going to go forward. And then, as you say, it comes down to how it affects the midterms. Um, do you see it helping to embolden the, the progressive wing, the Democratic people, uh, you know, the blue wave? Look what's happened now. We, we've lost the Supreme Court. This is more important than ever to, to put the Democrats back in charge. Or, or will it take some of the sting out of, out of what they've got and you know, some of the wind out of their sails? Oh, I don't think it takes a sting out, Doug, but I do think that, I mean, the, the, the issue is that Democrats are already so motivated that, you know, I mean, uh, people in the Bay Area are um, somewhat predictable. Not every one of you, but of course, as a whole, we know they're going to vote blue. Uh, democratic. So you start thinking about what about the woman in the suburbs of Missouri, you know, where they have a big Senate race. Is she more likely to show up for this or not because of this? And I'll tell you, for most of them, I mean, you're a suburban swing voter in Missouri. Whether or not the Republicans are hypocritical on forcing through a vote or whether or not Trump has a pick like this is unlikely to make a big difference of, of, of your showing up. Uh, but you never know. And it also, I mean, it works both ways because it also reminds evangelical voters that there's a reason that they vote for Republicans, even if they can't stand them on a number of issues. These issues are very, very important to them, the court decide. So, yeah, this is a very big political issue, and at least recently it's worked much better for Republicans than Democrats. The other issue that seems to be moving voters right now is immigration and what's happened at the border with the separation of children from their parents as cross-party lines. Two-thirds of the American people, the polls show, have been upset and outraged over this, which is why the president has shifted positions on it. Um, the, the midterms are still four months away. 
uh, you know, four months or so. Uh, how do you see that affecting what's happening four months from now? The president knows that immigration is a good issue for him. And he again repeated uh, just this last week in Montana, he said something about how, you know, MS-13, he said Democrats are the party of pro-MS-13, I think he said something along those lines. And he understands that by singling out immigrants and trying to tie them to crime, that this is something that gets Republican voters angry and gets them out to the polls to vote for Republicans. This is one where the rhetoric is very, very dangerous. You know, I teach a lot of students here at the University of California's Washington Center, and, you know, there are lots of uh, Latinos and Latinas. This is obviously not something that only affects them, but these people feel personally assaulted by this. I mean, many of them have parents back home who, some of whom are undocumented. A lot of them have cousins, uh, you know, or aunts and uncles who are undocumented. Some of them are undocumented. And it's one thing to fight about the policy of how we handle undocumented immigrants. It's another thing to throw out bogus statistics suggesting that immigrants, even undocumented immigrants, are responsible for some sort of crime wave. I mean, in fact, study after study has shown they commit fewer crimes proportionally than American citizens do. So you can argue about maybe the country's not big enough to handle new people. Maybe we ought to have English as the official language. Maybe we should build a wall. Drugs could be a problem. But to suggest that immigrants are criminals seems like a very, very cynical ploy to try to, uh, to, try to embolden Republicans to get angry and to show up at the polls. So while his boilerplate rhetoric on immigration moves his base and, and strengthens his base, solidifies it, the family separation thing has been hurting him with, with some of the very people he needs, the suburban women, the, the moderate swing voters, uh, forcing him to change his position from, from, oh, I can't do anything about it, there's a law, to, okay, here's an executive order. Uh, um, do you think, though, that you know, if they resolve this in some way in the next couple of months. I wouldn't expect comprehensive immigration reform, but at least for the crisis to subside in terms of the family separation, uh, that he's able to hold on to those people? Or will some of them, has he lost them for the midterms to some extent, and they might actually vote for the Democrats? Well, I guess it depends what you mean by those people, because, I mean, to the extent you're talking about you know, uh, Latinos, uh, no, they're, they're gone, and they may not come back to the Republican Party for at least a generation, if not more. Um, look what happened to Pete Wilson, governor of California, when he blamed undocumented immigrants for California's problems. Republicans have barely been elected statewide since then. But, 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 but yeah, I think there are a lot of voters here who truly believe. I mean, you hear this, again, among a lot of my students here. They assume that make America great again to them means make America white again. And that's not the color that America is turning. America is getting browner and browner. And nothing President Trump can do is going to change that. And he plays to people who I think that's very important to. He plays to people who are scared of immigrants. And if they're not scared of immigrants, he's going to make them scared of immigrants. And I think that continues to be you know, a winning issue. I mean, yes, showing crying children certainly tugs at the heartstrings of people who don't have you know, a bigoted bone in their body. But that's why you hear the president, he doesn't talk about how we're reuniting families. What he says is we're getting the animals out of here so that the infestation stops. He wants people to think of immigrants as gang members or rodents or cockroaches. So we only have a few minutes more with our political analyst, Mark Sandalow from Washington. But the other issue that's heating up is trade and President Trump imposing tariffs, China firing back with retaliatory tariffs. Isn't this likely to hurt the president with the very people he got elected to help, which is the people in the industrial Midwest, the people in the heartland who will be hurt, particularly by tariffs imposed by China? 
They've been very smart about this from a political standpoint. You look, so there's a list of tariffs that started just this last week. There's a list of 818 items where the U.S. now is charging a 25% tax on all these items that are coming from China. When they start taxing things like, you know, the socks you buy at Walmart, people are going to be furious when they see the price go 25%. But, I mean, I look through this list. I mean, I'm just reading off some vapor-generating boilers, spark ignition reciprocating combustion pistons for an aircraft. Um, these are things which, of course, companies rely on, and economists will tell you on a macroeconomic level, it causes damage to both countries' economy. It'll cost some growth. But, 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 but in terms of actual notice by consumers, that's still a ways away. So I think the president at this point can you know, sort of fire those weapons without, without this point of most Americans noticing. I saw in here, by the way, for Bay Area folks, seismographs. That's one of the things that are going to be taxed. So if you go on Amazon, you can do this now, and want to spend a couple hundred dollars on a seismograph, and you notice it's made in China, well, that's going to cost you 25% more. That's not a whole lot of people, though, who are going to be concerned about that. Well, I'm going to have to buy a domestic seismograph then, so, 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 that's, so that, right. that's yes. working. Uh, but, but eventually, some of the things that China is putting tariffs on uh, might come back to haunt President Trump a little bit, don't you think? No, no question. And, you know, that includes some California items like, you know, specialty, you know, all those nut stores that you see, not nutty, but nut stores between, you know, uh, Bay Area and Sacramento. You know, Chinese import those. You know, it's interesting. Nancy Pelosi always used to, um, uh, people used to say that she used to fight China because, um, um, and, 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 and stand up for uh, trade barriers with China when she talked about human rights, because look at all the Chinese in San Francisco. And, and, and they totally misread this. I mean, the people who are supporting uh, trade troubles with China or standing up for human rights tend to be liberals in San Francisco. Truth is, San Francisco Chinese population, many of them are involved in trade with their former country. And it's really a damage when you start to, you know, when you start to put barriers on trade. San Francisco is clearly one of the places that will be most hurt by trade war with China. I don't think that cost Donald Trump much sleep at night. I think you're probably right. All right. Thanks so much, Mark Sandalow, our KCBS political analyst, checking in from Washington. A lot to talk about, and there will be as the uh, year goes forward as we get closer to the midterm elections. But now we're going to pivot a little bit to the, the, the some of the legal ramifications of, of what's been going on and what's coming at the Supreme Court. Uh, and by the way, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth, and I'm Doug Sovereign. And for that conversation, we're joined in studio by UC Hastings College of the Law professor Rory Little. Rory was uh, a clerk at the Supreme Court too many years ago for us to mention. But Rory, thanks, as always, for being here with us. Thanks. Happy to be here. So let's begin uh, with what we started with Mark talking about, and, and that is the, the coming Supreme Court appointment. The president has said, well, he has his list of 25. He narrowed it to five. He narrowed it to four. Then he said he was down to two or three. Now maybe he's back up to three or four, but he's going to name that name Monday evening, primetime television, and you can hear it live here on KCBS. Uh, what is your sense of, of where he's leaning, if you have one? And, and let's talk a little bit about who those finalists are. I think it's actually very hard to predict who he's going to name, and that's the way he wants it. He wants us to have some uh, mystery, if you will, so that we can sort of put all the contestants into one campfire and see who comes out. The candidates, there seem to be four, and I think many people think that they're all qualified sufficiently to be on the court academically and by judicial experience and by prior career experience. 
Uh, and that it will depend to some extent on two things. One, who does Trump particularly feel personally connected to in these interviews? And second, where will there be political advantage for uh, not just Trump, but the Republican Party in the midterms? And I think that's what makes it hard to figure out. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who's a judge on the D.C. Circuit, is one of the candidates. He's one of these Yale Law School, highly qualified, clerked for Justice Kennedy, uh, incredibly impressive uh, background and intellect. Uh, and he would be sort of the most qualified on paper. But it's not clear that he does uh, the other things that uh, the president wants. There's another judge, uh, Raymond Kethledge, who was on the Sixth Circuit, who people know less about. Uh, but people seem to think that his interview with President Trump went really well. There is a woman in the mix, Amy uh, Barnett, is it? Ba- Amy Coney Barrett. Barrett. Right. And uh, she, very few people know her. She's only been on a court of appeals for seven months. Uh, she doesn't have a long track record. But she's clearly very conservative, and she clearly brings certain certain political points to the Trump uh, party, if you will. And then the, uh, the, the, the other person from the Sixth Circuit is this fellow Thapar, Adam Thapar, he, um, or Amul Thapar, he, he is less of a known quantity, but, but a highly qualified candidate, and he is a person of color who may bring certain things to the Trump party. So I think it's very hard to predict who will be the pick. Who would be the best pick, I think, is also hard to predict, uh, because it depends where your politics are. Yeah, so it's an interesting list because obviously Amul Thapar, he'd be only the second. Um, well, he'd be he's only the, he is only the second South Asian uh, appellate, you know, circuit court judge uh, in the country. He'd be the first, obviously, on the Supreme Court. Amy Coney Barrett would be only the second Republican woman. Sandra Day O'Connor being the first. And you would imagine that if the a lot of the debate is going to focus on Roe v. Wade, that the optics of appointing a woman, the president might find that appealing. Perhaps his thinking would be, well, fewer people will will worry about a woman overturning. Roe v. Wade. So, so how much do you think something like that um, plays into it as opposed to who he gets along with the best in the interview? Or I mean, Brett Kavanaugh seems very much like another Neil Gorsuch type, and maybe he likes that. I think his, um, his personal preferences and the politics of the people around him may, may diverge at some point. Um, but having another female justice on the Supreme Court, first of all, would put four justices of, who are female on the court, which would be the first time in history for that. I think it's also reflective of what Senator Collins has said, the woman from Maine who is a key vote in this very closely divided Senate right now. She has pointed out that there are many women who actually are opposed to abortion and who don't like Roe versus Wade. And so in that sense, this appointment could attract certain voters who might otherwise have misgivings. But I'm not sure President Trump cares as much about those politics. He wants a justice who will do one thing, and that is uphold executive power. He wants a justice who will uphold the power of the president to do what he wants and to eliminate due process, if you will, at the border, for example, to uphold the travel ban without question. Other executive branch orders, that's who he wants. And I think he feels more comfortable with somebody who he thinks would support that view. This is why Judge Kavanaugh may not be as attractive to him, because Judge Kavanaugh was part of the special counsel team that investigated President Clinton. And Judge Kavanaugh clearly was part of the team who recommended that the president could be impeached for various improprieties. I think President Trump would like a justice who doesn't think the president could be impeached for almost anything. 
On the other hand, though, Kavanaugh, I believe, uh, was the one who wrote at some point in his in judicial career that president shouldn't be, um, it's too much of a distraction for a president to be sued or to be prosecuted for something, which that I would think would appeal to President Trump. He'd very much like someone who would find that the president shouldn't be bothered while he's president with legal proceedings. You know, it's one of those interesting sort of theoretical questions. Uh, Kavanaugh clearly felt that the Constitution permits a president to be impeached for certain improprieties. He then wrote a law review article later saying, well, maybe Congress should pass a law that prevents this from happening while they're in office or something, not just be impeached, but be indicted, for example. And I think it's hard to know, frankly, how any justice would react once they are appointed to the Supreme Court. Everybody seems to think that Roe versus Wade is uh, sort of on the line here, and there's no doubt that, that that's in play. But people forget that Chief Justice Roberts is already on the court. He's there for life. He's a young guy. It isn't clear that he would vote to overrule Roe versus Wade. It isn't clear that this appointment is the most impactful appointment in history. It may be the next one. It may be what happens after this one. Would, would Clarence Thomas, for example, resign? Would that change the court? Would somebody else unexpectedly leave the court? Uh, the next appointment is the one that could solidify a majority that we would really be unhappy with. Yeah, and when you've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg and um, Stephen Breyer in their 80s and by all accounts doing fine, but one, one never knows. One <laughs> never at, knows. Look at Antonin Scalia or look at any of us. Um, so it's interesting that Justice Ro Chief Justice Roberts, as you mentioned, he kind of becomes the swing vote now. Uh, he's going to sort of take the place of Anthony Kennedy, assuming that President Trump does appoint uh, you know, a conservative, uh, which is an extraordinary thing to think that he's the middleman now between the four liberals and presumably a, a block of four conservatives. Yeah, you know, Justice Kennedy has always said he doesn't like the term swing vote, and I think he's right about this. But when you have a nine-person court, there's going to be one justice in the middle who on issues that divide the court will be the decision maker. And on many of those issues today with a polarized court, four people that lean to the left, four people clearly leaning to the right, uh, justice, w with a new appointment from President Trump, Chief Justice Roberts becomes that person in the middle who on some issues at least is likely to swing the court. Actually, this past term, Chief Justice Roberts diverged from the conservative bloc more often than Justice Kennedy did. Uh, Justice Kennedy was almost lockstep with the conservatives this past term. He hasn't always been, but this past term. So, I mean, people need to sort of keep this in perspective. It's a very important appointment, but I'm not sure any of the four candidates will, uh, will act in a way that we don't expect, and we will have to look to Justice Roberts and other people on the court to decide cases. So you mentioned uh, a lot of 5-4 decisions this time around, the conservatives plus Kennedy versus the liberal wing, some really big ones that came at the end, the Janus decision, the crisis pregnancy center ruling in California, obviously upholding the president's travel ban. For you, what, what was the most important or, or maybe most interesting case there to talk about? You know, it's hard to say what's most important. Uh, legally, the one that is most uh, frightening in some sense, or certainly surprising, is this California Pregnancy Center case, California versus Becerra, or where where the First Amendment was used to strike down a California law which required people to post notices, required a private business to post notices, to post a copy of their license or say that they're not licensed. We do this in lots of other areas. To use the First Amendment to strike down a notice posting for a business or a licensing requirement for a business that's really earth-shattering. That using of the First Amendment, Justice Kagan dissented and said, this is weaponizing the First Amendment. It's the same theory that was used to strike down the California agency fee union shop law in the Janus case. The First Amendment was weaponized to strike down another state law, taking that choice away from the people. 
Those two decisions, I think, are more frightening in terms of what they might mean for the future. The travel ban case was, of course, nationally and even internationally earth-shattering in the sense that the court seemed to say that when the president has a surface explanation for an order that is based on some national security concern, that they will not look behind it. And Chief Justice Roberts, to his credit, in his opinion, did recite the anti-Muslim statements of the president in some circumstances. In dissent, Justice Sotomayor put all those statements in. So those are preserved as a matter of history. But the reality is the court seems to say we won't look behind the order. This made President Trump very happy because it will sustain orders he might issue in lots of other circumstances. It's interesting because while they said in that case, well, we'll take him at face value, we won't look at his external statements, in the Masterpiece Bake Shop case in Colorado, they did the exact opposite to reach a different conclusion, which is they looked at the statements and and presumed intent of the Colorado Commission uh, that had told the bake shop it, it couldn't not. Uh, bake a cake for a gay couple. Well, uh, exactly right. And this is where uh, people would divide in a very uh, sort of political but also originalist theory, constitutional theory way. Uh, The president's supporters would say, what the president does is different. We can question the motives of other people. And when religion uh, is shown some hostility in a a setting of uh, state government regulation or something, we can strike that down. But when the president acts, we will not look behind it. Now, to a lot of us, that seems like a facile distinction that doesn't really work very well. Why can't you look behind to motivation for everything? That would be a consistent legal theory. The fact that it's the president makes a difference for the conservatives. And that is where President Trump wants to have a executive power advocate on the court right now. That's where he's going to pick right now. There's been a lot of talk, or not a lot, but some discussion among some Democrats of, hey, let's revive the FDR plan to pack the court and add more justices. A lot of people don't realize there's nothing in the Constitution that says how many justices there there can be. That's entirely up to Congress. It's nine now, but it could be changed. Uh, and then some of the Republicans responded and said, well, we'll go ahead and do that now. <laughs> let's add a couple more. Let's go to 11. We'll make it seven for conservatives. Is that a realistic uh, proposition that perhaps after 2020, if a Democrat wins, you expand the court and add a couple more Democrats? Or will we get to the point where there's you know 117 justices on the Supreme Court? Well, well you hope that it's not a realistic possibility um, because I think we are content for the last 100 years with having a nine-justice court uh, longer than that. But certainly since FDR, when the court was striking down uh, New Deal regulations and legislation five to four and then flipped and went five to four the other way, the idea that you could sort of expand or contract the court depending on your political preferences and that it somehow becomes a meaningless institution, that's a very frightening idea. This is a third branch of government and I hope, will be preserved as it stands today. You're right, nothing in the Constitution says it, and there used to be you know, six justices until they figured out that once in a while they might be split evenly. They needed an odd number. Um, I don't think the Democrats are serious when they say, oh, let's just pack the court with another five justices if we get control. Uh, I think it's their way of showing, frankly, an amazing amount of frustration and unhappiness about the polarized nature of the court right now. And President Trump clearly treats the court as just another sort of political uh, you know, foundation in his administration. He would say that 
you know, the Supreme Court should be subservient to the president. That is not the way the Constitution works. Now, FDR's threat got the court, he felt, to, to act a little more the way he wanted. And the famous line was, a switch in time saves nine. Do, would you see, if that became a real threat, this court responding in any way and, and taking it seriously? Or are they trying to stay beyond politics? Well, I mean, it's really hard to know because we're not, we're, we're not even close to that sort of Armageddon moment. Many people disagree with whether you know the FDR plan was going to doomed to fail even before there was a vote switch, or whether it actually caused the vote switch. The justice who switched always said, "I didn't switch. They never brought me the right case, and when they did, I I saw it the same way." So history is a funny thing. I do think we need to be very careful about the thinking that the justices aren't affected by this sort of thing. I think they are. I think they read the news. I think they have personal views. I think that they take the temperature of the country. Justice Kennedy became an advocate for same-sex marriage because the temperature of the country was clearly going in that direction. I think he believed it as a matter of constitutional law, but it didn't hurt that the culture was going the same way. Thanks so much, Roy Little, UC Hastings College of the Law professor. Thanks, as always. We'll speak with him again once we get this uh, nomination from President Trump. That's coming up. And again, I'm Doug Sovereign, KCBS. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.